0: You have no idea how much dust we had to blow off that track. Two years, is it, Daniel?
1: Just over two years,
0: Richard. It's good to be
1: be back. How are you?
0: I'm fine, thanks. Yes, Uh, and you're looking very well as well. That's very kind of you to say
1: so. I had to dust a few cobwebs off myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this is Richard Dale and Daniel Mumby here with you this Sunday lunchtime for one week only Mm -hmm. with a homage to the the movie hour yes something like that it's it's like the spinal tap reunion we're all a bit worse for wear but still doing the same things (laughs) great stuff (laughs) and uh, lots of uh, reaction on uh, facebook so far so thanks to everybody who's liked or commented to oscar to charles to kevin to simon hope many more of you listening this lunchtime because uh, it's going to be a cracker over the next hour Mm. so if you don't remember from two years ago, or you're new to Lionheart Radio, we talk a bit about movies. Well, actually, Daniel talks a lot about movies, and I pretend I know what, what he's talking about. <laughs> That's the rough idea of the next hour. we are having a look at the top ten. Then we're going to be talking about a cult film, which is... Highlander, because there can only be one. Yes, and then we'll have a look at some of the the new releases this week, some of which I actually know something about. Right. Which it's a nice surprise. First time in five years. <laughs> you know, the first time for anything. So, uh, before we move on, though, Daniel, I guess uh, we ought to just say a little bit about uh, Robin Williams and Lauren McCall because uh, uh, the movie world has lost two of its greats this week.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll start with McCall, shall we? I mean, yeah. I don't think there's much more to say beyond what's been said in terms of her relationship with Humphrey Bogart, which in many ways was like the Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor of its day. They were the the original 40s power couple, and she was, right until the end, one of the most beautiful women in Hollywood. Wasn't she just? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think... She's probably not as famous as Bogart because she spent a lot of her later career after her bigger films in the theatre, and that was the thing that she was most interested in. But for anyone who wants to know how good she was, go and rent The Big Sleep. There is a lot more to that film than just the famous scene about the whistling. It's a really interesting mid-40s film noir, which has really stood the test of time.
0: And then for Robin Williams, I was trying to work out which was my favourite of his films. I think it is Good Hunting for me. I know it's the one that won him his Oscar, but I think <laughs> it was, I think for me it showed the depth of his acting ability it's really good yeah i like good will
1: hunting as well for me robin williams is like a lot of other actors who come out of that very sort of um, broadly comedic saturday night live background in which you know they can do the broad comedy with their eyes shut and a lot of the time when they're let loose on that sort of thing they can often be irritating yeah and i think robin williams went through a period in the 90s when he was trying to combine that with a very sort of multi seriousness I mean if you look at things like Patch Adams or Bicentennial Man those sorts of things but for me his best performances are the ones where he's been sort of taken on by a director who really knows how to use him and reined in so if I was giving recommendations of what to check out um Go and rent Terry Gilliam's *The Fisher King*, which is a big performance, and that's a, a film about uh, in which he plays a homeless man yeah. who gets tied up with a shock jock DJ played by Jeff Bridges, and they go on a search for the Holy Grail, which is you know very good. He's in Kenneth Branagh's *Hamlet* very briefly. Uh, as the guy who's refereeing the duel between Hamlet and Laertes, and he gets one scene where he gets to go, Hit! A very palpable hit! (laughs) And that's, no, it's very fun. The remake of Insomnia by Christopher Nolan, which was the thing that allowed Christopher Nolan to make his first Batman film, him going toe-to-toe with Al Pacino and holding his own against Pacino to show how good he was, and another really underrated gem there is a a horror film from two thousand two called one hour photo in which he plays a photo booth attendant who becomes obsessed with the family whose photos he's developing and again it's it's a performance which has all the charisma that he brought to all his more famous comedic roles but it defies your expectations and shows you how much more there was to him and also i suppose in hindsight of what's happened, shows how much of a darkness there was yeah. to him.
0: Yeah, but somehow a depth that uh, Jim has never quite managed to, uh, to bring out. Well,
1: Jim Carrey has had its moments. I mean, you look at things like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind or The Truman Show, but he, he seems much more comfortable with, with the, the kind of bawdy slapstick, which he's yeah. a bit too old to get away with now.
0: Indeed. Right, so... So two very great losses to the movie world. Absolutely. Not a lot going on locally because there's live theatre in Annick this week. But on Friday Friday afternoon and Saturday afternoon, Mm -hmm. I think it is, uh, there is a matinee, which is Planes, Fire and Rescue. And I assume as it's a matinee, it is school holiday stuff for the kiddies. It
1: is school holiday stuff. Um, As we'll come on to, I think there's a lot better stuff in the top ten. I mean, for those who aren't aware, Planes is a Disney spin-off to Cars, which was a Pixar film, uh, and Cars has subsequently had its own sequel. I think there's going to be a third Cars film coming out in about three or four years' time, if box office is, is strong enough. And the thing about Planes is that it was originally, the first Planes film was originally meant to be straight to video and then was given a theatrical release on the back of the success of Cars 2. And this is kind of more of the same. It's not as interesting as any of the Pixar films. It's quite shoddily animated. Yeah. So if you, if you haven't got the money to travel further afield to take your children to see something in Newcastle or Berwick or anything like that, it will do fine. But don't go in expecting anything yeah. great.
0: But don't bother going to Berwick because there's absolutely nothing on there. I'm afraid not. <laughs> yes. yes. Remember we used to do this show, you'd have this long list of Berwick things and it's absolutely nothing. Mm. Anyway,
1: They must have seen us coming and thought, <laughs> best not.
0: No, no. <laughs> Never mind, we've got the top ten, and I can't wait till number eight. Uh, at number ten, it's um, Earth to Echo,
1: which is nothing to write home about. You know, it's a story about a trio of boys whose home is being destroyed by a construction project. They start receiving weird signals on their phone. Turns out, alien is stranded on Earth, so it's ET. It is yeah. basically ET re is the same certificate as this film, so go and rent that. Or better still, go and rent John Carpenter's Starman, which is the same story but done much more intelligently.
0: It's a holiday fair, isn't it? Uh, it is. Step Up All In is at number nine.
1: Yeah, it's the latest in the seemingly endless Step Up series, of which I've seen the first three. My girlfriend's a huge fan of the Step Up. I think no, the first one's pretty good, which is the one with Channing Tatum in. Uh, the second one is... Kind of unremarkable, and the third one's a bit of a mess. Um, This time, it's a lot of the original cast returning, and it's kind of what you'd expect, in that the dancing is very nice, and the choreography's good, they're clearly talented, it just needs a bit more plot, Your Honour.
0: Right, I can't wait for this one. At number eight, Transformers, Age of Extinction.
1: Wretched. I mean, viewers will remember, if you're familiar with the program, <laughs> my big rant against Dark of the Moon, which we revisited on the last ever program that we did. This is no better. I mean, Michael Bay is just an awful director, even with Mark Wahlberg, who's a perfectly decent actor. You know, he was in The Departed, and he's been in you know, Boogie Nights, that great Paul Thomas Anderson film. It's just every bit as stupid, overlong, boring, and misogynistic as the first three. Just why? Why do we have another one, aside from the fact that the figures add up?
0: That has to be one of the tamists. Comments I've ever heard from you on Transformers. Well, I'm starting as I mean to go. And <laughs> number seven, a re-release, Back to the Future. Gosh, that takes me back.
1: Yes, it's new. years yeah. and
0: years and years.
1: Hmm. We were.
0: When would you have first seen Back to the Future? Well, when it first came out, and I try to remember, I, I think I was. I think I was just about an adult at that stage, but probably <laughs> only just. It's a long time ago, wasn't it? Yeah,
1: I? I mean, we were discussing about why because it's not any kind of marker that I understand unless it's a very fan in joke thing where it's one of the dates yeah. that's featured in one of the films uh, which you, you might have seen various memes about on Facebook and the 30th anniversary is coming up next year so you may yeah. b- do this again it's really good I mean I was actually at a wedding yesterday and it's the bride and groom's favourite film so shout out to Gareth and Fiona Malcolm if you're listening on your honeymoon uh, it's always good to see it back in cinemas it is a classic of its time and unlike a lot of 80s blockbusters it does hold up on an emotional level You know it's a hearty story well told with good
0: performances yeah Very good acting,
1: yeah. Mm.
0: At number six, The Nut
1: Job. Which is a kind of pedestrian children's animation. Um, The story is that there's a bunch of squirrels who are trying to pull off a heist on a nut store. If you saw Over the Hedge from DreamWorks about eight years ago, you kind of know what you're in for. It's celebrities doing voices. In this case, Liam Neeson's playing a raccoon. He doesn't get to do the taken speech in animation. That would have made it slightly more exciting. You know, it's not in the least bit memorable.
0: At number five, The Purge, Anarchy.
1: Which is an unwanted sequel to an overrated mm-hmm. film. Do you remember the first Purge, which came out about a year ago? No. Okay. That one well, obviously
0: passed me by. Yeah,
1: I mean, The Purge had a, it did quite a lot of business in America, and it, it had a decent premise, which is that what, there's one night of the year in which all crime is legal and there's no emergency services, so everybody sort of... And everyone hides in their houses and then a home gets invaded. Ethan Hawke was in it. But it was very badly executed. You know, there were all kinds of plot holes about you know, how do you enforce certain rules saying you can't use this weapon. And you know, it just became yet another home invasion film. And this is just the same on a slightly bigger scale. So save yourself some time and go and rent the original version of Funny Games, which is Michael Haneke's. Home invasion film, which kicked off the wave of things that eventually led to The Strangers and so forth.
0: Oh, number four, The Hairdresser deserves an Oscar, if nothing else. Hercules. Yes, Dwayne The Rock Johnson has
1: been, you know, being well coiffured. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I mean, it is better than The Legend of Hercules, which was released in January and did no business at all, but it's still Brett Ratner at the helm. Brett Ratner being the guy who helmed. The Rush Hour films and the awful X-Men 3 The Last Stand where basically Brian Singer was going to do it. Then he jumped ship to do Superman Returns and Brett Ratner came along and just didn't know what he was doing. I mean, I do have an interest in Greek mythology. You know, I'm, I'm a, a Percy Jackson apologist up to a point. And I do like Ian McShane who's got a pretty really decent supporting role. But it is, like a lot of Ratner's films, more interested in the pecs and the pyrotechnics. Yeah than it is in the actual character and the myth of Hercules.
0: Right. Number three, this has been gone down extremely well in Anik earlier this summer, How to Train Your Dragon 2.
1: Which is perfectly decent. I mean, the first one was good, and it took enough money to warrant a sequel. Certainly, out of all the children's films out at the moment, I think it's the best one. And I do think we are starting to see... Something of a parity now between between Pixar and DreamWorks. It used to be the case, with the exception of Shrek, that DreamWorks were always kind of the poor relation yeah. in terms of production qualities, because they did celebs doing voices, but it's not really a kids' film. Whereas Pixar did the thing for all the family. But since Brave didn't do that much business, and then Cars 2 happened, and then the the production problems about uh, uh, the first dinosaur, or whatever it's called. Pixar have started to drop the ball, so How to Train Your Dragon 2 is, is as good as it's going to be for the time being.
0: And then number two, huge critical acclaim. It's uh, got 91% on the, the Little Rotten Tomatoes site. <laughs> um, I haven't seen this one yet, Uh Dawn of the Planet of the Apes.
1: Now you were a big fan of Rise of the Planet of the I Apes. I was indeed yes, yes
0: I liked that one yeah. so I think I might enjoy the sequel. But, yes. Uh, what do you reckon?
1: I think it looks as good. I mean people are saying it's even slightly better. I mean Rise of the Planet of the Apes was kind of a reworking of Conquest of the Planet of the Apes if you go back to the original series whereas this is this is an, an, a standalone very much. It picks up after the first film where humanity has been devastated by the virus that yeah. wiped them out at the end of the first so you have a conflict between a pack of apes led by Caesar played by Andy Serkis and and a genetically immune group of humans who are hiding out in the ruins of San Francisco. The effects are great, as you would expect. You know, it's all performance capture, yeah. and you know, Andy Serkis is you no know, doing it. It is pretty smart in terms of the politics of it, and it's directed by Matt Reeves, who, you know, on the one hand, made Cloverfield, which is a perfectly enjoyable sort of found footage Godzilla film, but on the other hand made the remake of Let the Right One In, which was totally pointless. There is already Oscar talk for Andy Serkis in his performance, and if he does get it, it will be long overdue.
0: Right. And number one, another summer film, also to huge critical acclaim, Guardians of the Galaxy.
1: Which, from everything I gather, is enjoyable Marvel fare. I mean, I was, like I said, at a wedding yesterday and a few people came up to me and said, I I saw it. The trailer doesn't do it justice. It It is really, really good. And like all the best comic book films, it does seem to embrace its ridiculous elements and turn them into something believable. I mean, even Nolan's Batman films, to mention them for the second time in a few minutes, they do at least attempt to tackle all the kind of stuff about the logistics of the Batwing and the martial arts training and, yeah. and the fact that why would anyone dress like that? Now they do sort of unpick it. I mean, the most interesting thing about it for me is that it's directed by James Gunn, who started off his career working for tra- for Troma and you know, made things like Slither, which was a David Cronenberg homage about killer slugs, and then made Super, which was a kick-ass knockoff. And it's interesting that you now having made two films which are very sort of... Angular and odd and never quite worked and very disturbing he's actually broken in with something that's mainstream and made it sort of quirkily his own
0: so plenty in the top 10 I'm definitely going to have to go and see Dawn of the Planet of the Apes but there's something for everyone there I think so
1: I mean if you've got young children because we're still on school holidays then How to Train Your Dragon 2 is the pick of the children's films Um, Guardians of the Galaxy and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes are pretty good and if you're not a fan of either of those go and see Back to the Future again why not
0: or you could always go and see Transformers if you Man. have no
1: brains, yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll have our cult film after this. Live, Live from, from Annick this is Lionheart Radio. But for the next uh, 35 minutes or so, you've got Daniel Mumby and Richard Dale with the Movie Hour. Our cult film this week takes us back to 1986 and it's Highlander. It is indeed. Be even better if I turned your microphone on. It I? would
1: indeed be better. I've only been here 25 minutes and you're already trying to shut me down. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you in another two years. Yes. Okay, so Highlander, 1986 Fantasy Adventure, which is a a UK-US co-production based on a story by Gregory Whedon or Wyden, who subsequently wrote uh, Backdraft, which is Ron Howard's fireman action movie, and a little-known film called The Prophecy, starring Christopher Walken, which is a cult hit in some parts of America. He also wrote a novel recently, wonderfully titled Blood Makes Noise. As he says, Richard takes a sip of his coke and almost spits it out. He got the idea for this film uh, on a holiday in Scotland where he was uh, being shown around a country house walked past a, a knight's suit of armour and wondered to himself what it would be like if this knight was alive today and he wrote a screenplay which was originally called Shadow Clan he was also inspired to a great extent by Ridley Scott's debut film The Duelists which has got Harvey Keitel in and it. it's about two yeah. people dueling each other at several points in the 18th century very good film Directed by Russell Mulcahy, who is an Aussie music video director. He previously made a cult film called Razorback, which is a horror film about a giant killer boar rampaging through Australia, which got him noticed. He actually made his debut, however, with the documentary Derek and Clive Get the Horn, which was about the filming of the last Derek and Clive EP. Derek and Clive, for those who are too young to remember, was the the alter egos of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore in the 70s. They were two foul-mouthed lavatory attendants and they made a number of really funny but really un pc long players, which you can probably now get on on digital. Yeah. I think they're widely available. Dad, I dare play it here. Yes. It had to pay the censored version, so it would just yes. be bleep, bleep, dad, bleep. <laughs> and he apparently is now, Russell Mulcahy, directing episodes of Teen Wolf in America. That Yes, they made a TV series out of Teen Wolf, and apparently it's very good. Oh, right. Yes. Right,
0: okay. So, yes. Moving no. swiftly on.
1: Stranger things have happened. Um, filmed on a budget of $19 million, took about $17 million, most of that overseas. It was not a big hit in the US say at all but became a hit in Europe mainly due to the home video market led to a whole franchise of films with four sequels a television series an animated television series and finally a tv film on the sci-fi channel which seems to have killed it stone dead but it's Highlander you can never quite tell we'll get onto those a little bit later (laughs) yeah so the plot is it's A split time frame story which takes place uh, alternately in 1536 and in 1985. The past scenes take place in Scotland, the present scenes in New York City. At the beginning of the film, we see a man called uh, Connor McLeod, who's going under an alias at this point, played by Christopher Lambert who many people may have seen in the Mortal Kombat films from the 90s. He is attending a wrestling match in Medicine Square Gardens when he is overcome by a strange sensation, wanders down to the car park where a strange man confronts him and they sword fight. The fight ends with McLeod chopping off the guy's head with the sword and absorbing a lot of strange electrical energy that comes out of his neck. Turns out, Connor MacLeod is an immortal man who can only be killed by the loss of his head. He's one of many immortals who must kill each other as the gathering approaches until the last one left receives something called the prize. And the story flashes back and forth between him being investigated by the police in the present day and being trained in the past by another immortal called Ramirez, played by Sean Connery. Yes, Spanish character played by a person with Scottish accent. No wow. doubt done in Indeed. <laughs> in Scottish accent, yes. yes. And they are training in the Scottish Highlands, hence Highlander. Yeah. And we played a little bit of Queen at the beginning of the show to uh, sort of get an idea, much like Flash Gordon, which we both love. Queen yes. did the soundtrack for this. Most of their contributions, including the song "Princes of the Universe, can be found on the album A Kind of Magic, which is yes. what we started with. So, Highlander, part of the appeal of cult classics, and I think this applies to nearly all the ones we've covered on this show, is being able to simultaneously love and hate a given film. Cult classics are flawed gems, with even the very best having characteristics which prevent them from ever being completely embraced. I mean, as much as I love a lot of the films that we've discussed on here... I know that you can pick flaws in most, if not all of them. I mean, even Blade Runner, which I raved about on my... I think it was when we did it on my birthday. I think it was, yes. I'm fully aware that there are versions of that film, like the original one with the voiceover, which are pretty pedestrian. And, you know, you have to watch it in the right scenario. But it does take a special kind of cult classic to completely split your brain in two, where one half is seething at how stupid it all (laughs) is, and the other (laughs) half is going, actually, this is really fun. And Highlander is one of those films. It's taken on a reputation as one of the quintessential cult films of the 1980s. I mean, it's in terms of fan affection, it's on a par with Labyrinth. I mean, to the extent that, you know, there's the old joke about if you go up to any Labyrinth fan and say, you remind me of the babe, they will instinctively say, what babe? And you'll just do the magic dance <laughs> yeah. song like that. Whereas if you go up to any Highlander fan and say, there can be only one, they will just instantly start sort of engaging with you. And, and you know. Both are victims of a level of nostalgia, which has greatly rose-tinted them, I think. I mean, Labyrinth and Highlander are both iconic and both absolutely deserving of cult status. I just don't think they're not quite as good as we, we remember them the first time out. This is compounded in Highlander's case, however, by the fact that Most, if not all, of the sequels are pretty dire. I mean, the most infamous of them is Highlander 2 The Quickening, made by the same guy in the early 90s, but which retcons most of the original story. Retcon is a conic term meaning retroactive continuity where basically you change what happened in a character's backstory to tell another story. Um, In this case, it basically changes it so that the immortals are aliens from the planet Zeist, and they're only immortal when they're on Earth. (laughs) Doesn't make any sense. They're in about five different cuts of Highlander to the Quickening and each of them are completely awful. And you go through the sequels right down to Highlander the Source. If you go onto YouTube and type in Highlander Spoonie, there's a guy called Noah Antwiler who does the Spoonie Experiment show and he has gone through all the Highlander sequels. And yes, they're pretty awful in any sort. The point is that the subsequent installments are so bad that film fans have lionised the original, saying, oh, the first one was so great, and then it all went wrong. But actually, the first one, it's not great, but there are some good things about it. At first glance, you know, you might be forgiven for thinking the film was not that impressive, at least in terms of its direction. I mean, Mulcahy... Razorback is a good film. I'll uh, give him that. And there are things about Derek and Clive get the horn which are enjoyable. Most of which are down to Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. But he is actually most famous for helming music videos for Duran Duran and Bonnie Tyler. In particular, he did the video for Total Eclipse of the Heart. And no, there are many great filmmakers who have come out of music videos. You no, know, Michel Gondry, Jean-Pierre Jeunet, who made Amelie, Spike yeah. Jones, who recently did Her, which is apparently really really great. But Mulcahy is not that good a visual storyteller, no. In a medium where lighting a prop for two hours is very highly considered, he's king. But when he actually comes to linking them into a story, he hasn't quite got it. The opening hour of Highlander is very pop video-esque. I mean, they're all discernibly directed by the same guy, but he just doesn't really link them. You know, the compositions are like a pop video. The camera angles are, the way the characters move. The sets are often preposterous. There's one moment where... Sean Connery is fighting a, a villain called the Kurgan on the side of a, a ruined castle, and it looks like the ruined steps are made out of polystyrene that's been painted brown and then just shot in a slightly backlit yeah. way to make it look like wrong. You know, it, it is cheap. And you would swear that certain shots are from actual music videos. The fight in the car park scene is very much like the ending of Michael Jackson's Beat It, where they all get together and the gang sort of have a dance-off and MJ solves all the problems in the world, as he (laughs) always does. And then the castle fight is a bit like um, Over the Hills and Far Away, the Gary Moore song, which has got all the Spanish drumming and the pipers and all the rest of that, which is a good song. So the first hour is kind of empty, silly and fun in an almost so bad it's good way. The script is almost entirely exposition and montage in which you get the backstory set up on sets which look like they're kind of cast offs from Monty Perth and the Holy Grail. I know we have our differences over that film. Let's not yes. go there today. <laughs> There isn't a great deal of character development. You know, it, the film is trying to set up this kind of romantic relationship in the present yeah. day between uh, Lambert's character and Roxanne Hart, who's playing a journalist investigating him, but it doesn't really start going there for the first hour. And Connor McLeod himself, you know, as much as he's achieved iconic status, he's not that distinctive as a character. Now he, we, we kind of go along with him because there's no one else to have a protagonist with rather than because we genuinely like him. There are a number of interesting ideas in Highlander, but like a lot of cult films, it doesn't get to grips with them quite as much as it could have done. I mean, the idea of, you know, a secret conflict between immortals that's been going on for centuries... It's enormous potential, either as a straight-up fantasy or pitching it as a fish-out-of-water story for the Roxanne Hart character who's coming to all of this and she's finding out about these swords that have been around for hundreds of years and yet look completely modern. It becomes bigger, even so, when we discover about the nature of the prize. I won't spoil it, because telling you what the prize is kind of undercuts the film. But suffice to say, when you think about it, it has big implications on an ethical level in terms of humanity. It's to do with well, knowing other people's thoughts, but in a very specific way. Right. Um, So those are all interesting ideas, but the film doesn't take them to the natural conclusion in the sense that it's not as weighty as it could be. I mean, it doesn't even make out all the different aspects of the universe that's set up. You know, the battle sequences are well choreographed in the sense, you know, people are doing lots of nice moves with the swords and the camera angles are fine, but it feels like you could almost show them in any order. There's no real sense of escalation. And the, you no, know, the, there's lots of talk about you know, the gathering being invoked where all these immortals are going to gather together and fight and one's going to be left to get the prize. And then you reach the end and it's a fight between two blokes underneath an advertising hoarding. And you think, hmm, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, this ain't. I was expecting something a little bit more was impressive. Was the
0: budget running out at that stage? Quite possibly, yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, As as you well know, you don't shoot films in order, but it's likely they would have done those things at last because they're yeah. night shoots. Um. The acting is pretty good. I mean, there is a good performance by Clancy Brown as the Kurgan, who is this kind of sadistic immortal who uh, dresses like a goth. He's got big sort of metal stitches across his neck where someone's tried to you know, cut his head off and it hasn't quite happened. He is played by um, Clancy Brown, who later plays the sadistic warden Byron Hadley in The Shawshank Redemption. You know, the one who beats up all the prisoners yeah, at the start, and yeah. whom Andy Dufresne says on the rooftop, do you trust your wife? And then it gets into the whole tax business thing. And that's funny. And no, it's very good makeup and costume, but there is a good performance under there. And Sean Connery, you know, it's Sean Connery playing a Spaniard. It's like that wonderful line in The Hunt for Red October where they try and excuse his accent by saying, oh, he's from Lithuania. <laughs> you know, you have to get over the fact that it's, it's Sean Connery. He's playing great yeah. And he does have a great line saying, you know, I, I was the sword maker for Emperor Charles V. I can show you how to be it. And then he does all the exposition pretty well. Roxanne Hart does the best she can with what is essentially a nothing role. The one real link actually is Christopher Lambert, who is basically a pretty boy. I mean, if you look at his one really good performance, which is in Greystoke, um, which is a revisionist take on Tarzan made by the same guy I who did, well, yeah, yes. same guy who did *Chariots of Fire*, and that yes. sort of attempted to, to sort of look at it from a much more serious point of view than the original pulpy yeah. Edgar Rice Burroughs story. And the thing that made Christopher Lambert good in that was that he was playing someone who wasn't entirely human. And so it wasn't a problem when he was kind of blank-faced and distant. <laughs> Whereas here, you kind of need him to do a bit more. Yeah. There have been speculation as to one of the reasons he was like that is because Lambert is incredibly short-sighted. And obviously, you can't have a 500-year-old immortal who wears modern-day glasses. It wouldn't work. So they had to yeah. take his glasses off and he couldn't really see where he was looking. Yeah. And yeah, that, that has a certain amount of him. There are a number of plot holes with Highlander. And I know it's it's one of those things when you're reviewing films, complaining about plot holes is a rather boring thing to do. And But in this case, they're big enough that you kind of have to mention them. And the fantasy genre relies on creating a believable world for its audience. So if you're sitting there thinking, well, that doesn't make sense and that wouldn't happen, it's not doing its job properly. Yeah. So... If you there are if you have if there were small discrepancies you could sort of overlook them saying, Okay, well that's not explained, but it doesn't affect the story. But in Highlander's case that's the mythology's not that sound. The split time frame doesn't quite work in the sense that we're told that McLeod's uh, sword is a product of modern technology, but he's had it for four hundred years. So how does that work? Um, there's no explanation for a lot of the Immortals' rules, such as why you can't fight on holy ground, and there's a conversation between the Kurgan and Connor in the church in which he says, don't hit me, because, you know, we're not allowed. Uh, nor is the loss of the head explained as a means of why Immortals die, although I suppose it's partially explained once you know the nature of the prize, but it's still a bit arbitrary. And then there's the whole thing about, you no know, carrying the swords around. I mean, in the car park fight there's a sequence where Christopher Lambert is sitting down and then pulls a sword out of his jacket pocket. And it's not like a little dagger. It's a full six-foot sword. (laughs) And you kind of think...
0: Where did that come from? Exactly.
1: (laughs) I mean, either you've got a sort of whammy space uh, pocket like in Scott Pilgrim or something along those lines. I mean... There's a fantastic um, Japanese anime cartoon called Revolutionary Girl Utena, the film version of which features um, a sword fight in which someone pulls a sword out from the front of someone's dress, and it's like, you were hiding that blade in your cleavage, that must have hurt, (laughs) so it doesn't exactly kind of go into that solution. So a lot of the stuff I've said so far would make it seem that the film's not that worth it, but... You get to the hour mark, having sort of gone, It's kind of all right, it's a bit silly, but I'm sort of with it in a kind of escapist tosh sort of way and then it starts to pick up a bit. And the key moment that picks up is that Connor's first love, who's a Scottish maiden called Heather, dies. No, and yeah. there's a there's a nice sort of slow montage in which she gets progressively older but Connor stays the same age. And when she dies, the Hunter is left on his own, he's incapable of killing himself, that's No, immortals can't do that because they just come straight back to life and there's no way that he can release his pain or sorrow and that's the first point where you think actually I do care about this guy a lot more and no it doesn't it doesn't have the same level of insight into kind of aging and immortality that you get in say the best vampire fiction Yeah. Uh, no there's that wonderful line in let the right one in which we talked about earlier saying you know I've how old are you and the vampire character says 12 but I've been 12 for a very long time (laughs) And that's a lovely yeah. moment. So it doesn't quite get in that deep, but it does give us an emotional hook that keeps us watching. And after that, the film kind of gains a whole new energy and you can laugh with it more. And there's a wonderful sequence where set in the 18th century where Connor has been alive for about 300 years now. No, 200 years, because it's the 18th century. I'm yeah. getting my centuries mixed up. And he's managed to get himself into a duel. And this is the point where McCall, he is kind of doing the duelist with jokes. Yeah. Because the guy shoots him with an old-fashioned pistol. And then he just keeps getting up. And he has to <laughs> shoot him again and again and again. And eventually the guy just goes mad and runs away. It's and sort that, of memories of Jack Harkness from Doctor Who, isn't it? It is kind of. Yes. It is Captain that Jack. That bit yes. Yeah, absolutely, yes. And I'm going to sort of bring you in a little bit here it's it's very much like logan's run in the sense of ironically the second that you stop trying to take it seriously it, the film actually fires and begins to have moments where you can embrace it yeah i mean i know you have great affection for logan's run yes
0: but you don't take any of that seriously do you well That's, you can read into certain
1: things of it but yeah you know is. the whole until they get out into the new eden yeah. where jenny Agutter yeah. and michael york are sort of wandering around it's with not much fun on. romp it is a romp, and, yes. but the point is that you can invest in a romp even if it's yep. not the most profound thing in the world. So what you end up with is a very strange, oddball little film which is driven first and foremost by a desire to just have fun. That's kind of reflected in the soundtrack by Queen, which is not quite as good as the Flash Gordon soundtrack, but hey, it's 80s Queen, It's you know what you're going to get. Both scores celebrate the ridiculous and allay all worries about the aspects that don't make sense. I mean, I suppose it's like that moment in the second Austin Powers film where Michael York as Basil Exposition turns to Austin and says, all this time travel questions you have, I wouldn't worry. And then he turns to the audience and says, and I would just enjoy yourselves as well. (laughs) It's that kind of (laughs) thing. And the more you think about Highlander's mechanics, the less you enjoy it because it is intended as tosh. So to sum up, it is very silly, it is very stupid, but it is also far too entertaining to hate. It is, no, you could derail it as a catalogue of missed opportunities, but as ridiculous and idiotic as it may seem, there is still plenty that's enjoyable and entertaining. You know,
0: make no mistake, Highlander is utter tosh. But it's perfectly agreeable, Tosh. <laughs> lovely, Tosh. That's a nice summary of it, isn't yes. it? Right, we'll have a look at the new releases after this. Call the studio now on 01665 That's Annick 602244. So to the new releases now, and this is going to make for great radio, but um, there is an article in yesterday's Daily Telegraph magazine on the first one that we're going to look at, which is called The Rover. And it's got a picture of the star Guy Pearce um, from the film. And I've got to say, they didn't spend too much on the costume budget for this one, did they? No, it, it,
1: to describe for our viewers, I think you've got another copy yes. in front of it. He's it kind is. of sitting down, looking yeah. very dishevelled and not exactly clean-shaven, in nothing more than a pair of shoes and some shorts. Yes. And pretty buff, I have to say. I mean, Guy Pierce is... is well stacked at the best of times, but he's been working out for that role.
0: Yes, indeed. And there's a picture on the other page of him from his neighbour's days hmm. when he looked like a typical neighbour's actor, really, didn't he? Sort yes. Of, yes. yes, well scrubbed. Yes. Yeah, indeed. Yeah.
1: And we should probably remind people at this stage that uh, back in the old days of this programme, we actually reviewed one of his cinematic breakout roles, which was The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. So people can go to lionheartradio.com, click on Listen to Interviews and scroll down, you'll find that review in there somewhere.
0: Yes. And of course, Priscilla, been out on stage recently.
1: And doing very well.
0: We went to see it in Newcastle. It was brilliant. I think Jason
1: nighter. Donovan was doing it a run on in that. It was yes. indeed,
0: yes. So so everything was fine with this picture, other than when I was photocopying it, I chopped his head off. Which, <laughs> so sort it's to make of... it look like one of those sort of... Fancy art pictures you'd see in an art gallery these days rather than a photo from a film.
1: Either that or no, very fitting in with the Highlander thing, of course. Maybe he was an immortal.
0: So tell us something about The Rover then. (laughs)
1: Okay, it's the new film by David Michard, who back in 2010 worked with Guy Pearce on Animal Kingdom as both writer and director. And Animal Kingdom was a very interesting kind of gangland family drama which won a couple of independent film awards. Um, This is a post-apocalyptic drama set ten years after Society Has Collapsed. And it follows a hardened loner called Eric, played by Guy Pearce, as he travels through the towns and villages of the desolate outback. Uh, At one point early in the film, his car is stolen by a gang of thieves who leave behind a wounded man called Ray, played by Robert Pattinson, him of Cedric Diggory in Harry Potter and, of course, the Twilight series. And together, they sort of team up to track down the gang. Um... Way back, again, in the history of this program, we reviewed the Mad Max trilogy. I think we did the first two together, and then I did Mad Max 3 with Paul Young, who started this whole shenanigans. And no, the first two Mad Max films are great. The third one, it's very uneven. It's kind of Peter Pan, but with punk Western clothing and lots of fetish gear. (laughs) Uh, And what made Mad Max so good was that they combined the camp exploitation thrills with biting social commentary. You You could just enjoy them as car chases with, you know, lots of people with strange accents riding around in leather and having a good time. But it was also you know, an interesting trilogy of films about human nature, the way that people are manipulated through limited resources, the role of violence in society. Suffice to say, the rover is not Mad Max. Uh, there is a similarity to the second film and the idea of an outsider wandering through the wilderness and reluctantly teaming up with another outsider. Who, know, it's no, Robert Pattinson standing in for the gyro captain yeah. in the second film. But it does have some indie charm to it, and it is nice to see Robert Pattinson trying to broaden his range. You know, considering how much he was written off as a pretty boy in his Harry Potter Twilight days, you know, he's actually done some pretty interesting work. You know, He did Cosmopolis with David Cronenberg, and clearly he has a certain amount of talent. Yeah. Um, there is another Mad Max film called Fury Road, which is coming out early next year, and this is quite a nice way to pass the time in between that.
0: Right, So, from uh, The Rover to The Expendables 3, Sylvester Stallone returns to our screens. He does, yes. Judging by the critics' reviews, they probably wished he hadn't. Well, yeah. I mean, the critics have been down on Stallone for a long, long time.
1: Um, There's a story that Mark Kermode likes to tell about meeting Stallone in Cannes when Copland was released, which is his attempt at being sort of more dramatic after both the Rocky and the Rambo series had died out. And he said, no, I'd never go back and do those. That would be stupid. And then, of course, he did.
0: Um, there's a bit of a uh, who's who with him though, isn't there? Antonio Banderas, uh, Dolph Lund- Lundgren, Dunclan, uh, Wesley Snipes. I'm going to call him that. Cast now. list here. Dolph Lundgren. Lundgren
1: is a much more catchy name. So it's the third instalment of the Expendables series. This one is directed by Patrick Hughes, who is another Australian filmmaker, made Red Hill, which I think yeah. we covered a few years ago, co-written by Sylvester Stallone this time around, and that's not a good sign because <laughs> Stallone can do it's many hard things. hard to
0: get your head around that. Stallone
1: maybe? can do many things, but he can't. Right. I mean, he wrote some of the Rocky films, I think, because he directed the third and fourth. But yeah, anyway, the story this time around, if you can call it that, is the team that came up is the team are coming up against an arms dealer called Conrad Stonebanks, played by Mel Gibson, in one of his I'm going to explode, but you can trust me roles. Uh, He co-founded the Expendables with Stallone, and they have to bring in new members in the form of Harrison Ford and Antonio Banderas. As with the first two films, like you say, it's a guest list and there is a certain amount of novelty that comes from seeing all those action stars together in the same way as when the Oceans trilogy happened, you know, getting Brad Pitt and George Clooney together in the same one. It was fine for the first one and then it sort of wore off and they ran it into the ground. And it is nice to see Mel Gibson doing another intensely villainous performance yeah. because that's something he's done so well throughout his career. Now, whatever you think about his political views or his work as a director he is a very intense actor and if you don't believe me go and watch lethal weapon it's brilliant the problem is that once the novelty of seeing all those people wears off the plot is desperately ordinary. I mean, it is still riffing on the whole Dirty Dozen formula, which has been around since the '60s, but with none of the intelligence of Dirty Dozen, and the direction is not remarkable. So I would say, either go and see the Dirty Dozen on DVD, get and get it on DVD, I should say, because no, Lee Marvin is just yeah. as charismatic as Stallone, if not slightly more so, or go and rent the first Red film with John Malkovich and Bruce Willis, which does the same kind of thing with a more comic book sensibility, and it's a bit more fun.
0: Yeah. Another one that's not getting very good critical reviews at the moment, and it won't come up on my screen, is uh, Hector and the Search for Happiness. Which is the new film by Peter Chelsom, who started off pretty
1: well. He made a strange, quirky comedy called Funny Bones, but most recently did the Hannah Montana movie. So make of that what you will. It's based on the novel by the same, of the same name in which Simon Pegg plays a quirky psychiatrist. I know, I don't believe it either. <laughs> he is bored with his life and he tells his girlfriend, who's played by Rosamund Pike, that he's going to travel the world uh, to find the true source of happiness. And you can pretty much guess where it goes from there. Funny things happen with Simon Pace's career. Now, when he was starting out as a TV star with Spaced, the films that he made were often sort of edgy and interesting. And you look at any of the stuff that he did with Edgar Wright after Spaced. And it's testament to that. And since he started getting small roles in Hollywood, really ever since that supporting role in Mission Impossible 3, The stuff he's picked in between the likes of the Star Trek films and the continuing Mission Impossible franchise have been much more uneven. I think the last one of his that we covered was a strange little film called The Fantastic Fear of Everything, which had a lot of potential about it, but was very strangely put together. In this case, it's a smug, self-satisfied self-help film along the lines of Julia Roberts's Eat, Pray, Love in which someone who is, seems to have it all goes on a journey to find themselves and they expect us to be interested in it. It's a lot of travelogue footage. I don't know if you... You must remember the Kenny Everett video show. Oh, yes. There's a wonderful sketch in that where Willie Rushton of... I'm sorry, I haven't a clue, climbs to the top of a mountain and Kenny Everett's sitting there as a guru and Willie Rushton's character says, I have come all this way to find myself. Tell me, who am I? And Kenny Everett takes out a Polaroid camera, takes a picture and goes, there you are. (laughs) (laughs) Good way of doing it. Absolutely. So, you know, I like Simon Pegg as an actor, but this is a bit pants and I think he needs to choose his smaller projects a bit more carefully. An interesting little thing to finish off. Go and search on YouTube for The Death and Return of Superman, in which he has a cameo playing John Landis. Oh, yes. Want to look at. Yes. Okay, next one is called Blood Ties. Which is the new film by Guillaume Canet, who most recently did Little White Lies with Marianne Cotillard, but also made the brilliant Tell No One, which was remade as The Next Three Days with Russell Crowe. This is nominally a remake of a French film called Les Liens du Sang by Jacques Mayot, And it's a period thriller set in New York in the mid-1970s, in which you have two brothers, uh, Chris, played by Clive Owen, who is a convicted criminal who's been released for good behavior, and Frank, played by Billy Crudup, who is uh, his younger brother, who's a cop with a bright future, as the Rotten Tomatoes synopsis cater. So the brothers move in together, the younger brother wants to give the older one another chance, but then... Clive Owen's character returns to crime, and the blood ties are strained. There's also a supporting role for James Kahn as their long-suffering father. I mean, it's not up there with the standard of Tell No One, which was a really interesting kind of thriller about, you know, someone whose wife had been wrongfully imprisoned and tries to break her out, and it's about how far would you go for someone you loved. And it's trying very much to imitate 70s era Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, William Friedkin, all those great new Hollywood directors, but it's not up there with the likes of Mean Street. It's a bit melodramatic in its story contrivance of two brothers. It's the kind of film they would have made back in the nineteen fifties. Um, but the cast are very watchable. I mean, I have a soft spot for James Caan ever since you know his role as Sonny Corleone, in which I think he's one of the best things about the original Godfather films. It's nothing remarkable, but it's a perfectly passable drama.
0: Right. And our final one, which I guess could be the one of the week, is The Congress. Seems to have uh, split the critics, but more like it than don't. Hmm. I'll read out one or two of the comments. So, um, a fascinating and visually impressive intellectual helter-skelter ride. Uh, The animation work here doesn't look much more interesting than the average laptop screensaver. Well, there's two (laughs) completely opposite comments. Where does the latter review come from? Hmm? Uh, What's... Uh, From The Guardian, actually. Oh,
1: right. Hmm. Peter Bradshaw has got a lot to answer for. Uh, So it's a new film by Ari Folman, who's an Israeli filmmaker who made a smash back in 2008 with the documentary Waltz with Bashir, which was this partially animated documentary about the 1982 conflict in Lebanon. And it was fantastic. This is based loosely on a novel called The Futuristic Congress by Stanislav Lem, who is the guy who wrote Solaris, which, you know, depending on which version, is either an Andrei Tarkovsky film, which goes on for three hours and is very interesting, or a George Clooney remake with Natasha Macalone, which is, you know, a bit more frothy and was billed as Solarsis because you get to see George Clooney naked from behind. Um, This film stars Robin Wright playing a version of herself, so it's a kind of self-reflexive Charlie Kaufman thing in which she plays an ageing actress who takes her final role by preserving her digital self for future Hollywood. And the deal is, they can use her image for whatever projects they like with no restrictions, and in return, she gets the compensation she needs to care for her ailing son, and her image never ages. Uh, When her digital self becomes a big hit, she is invited to go to the Congress Convention for Fantasy Cinema and make a big comeback. It is a very interesting piece of work, and despite the mixed reaction that you quoted, I think it could be one of the films of the year. I mean, from a visual perspective, it's interesting because it is partially animated or rotoscoped, as with Waltz of Bashir. And clearly, Ari Folman does have an affinity for using animation to explore issues which are very complex and engaging grown up. I mean, it's it's a film about virtual fame, yeah. and it taps into the way in which the internet has changed how celebrity works and who owns the talent. You know, things have moved on a lot from the time of the Hollywood studio system, where actors would sign on for a certain number of films and then... Go off and do something else. You know. Now it's much more freeform. And it's also a film about how technology affects our definition of humanity. Because it is the virtual self holding the power? Or is Robin Wright still in control because she has all the legal control? I think if you went to see Transcendence, which was the film where Johnny Depp sort of became assimilated into a computer. And you found that rather dissatisfying. you know, I'm kind of on the fence about it. You will find this a lot more engaging because it deals with the same idea of humans' relationship with technology in a much more humanistic fashion. And Robin Wright, formerly Robin Wright Penn, because, of course, she was married to Sean yeah. Penn. Bad idea. Uh, <laughs> well, he's notorious. You know, there are all kinds of stories about what happened when he and yeah. Madonna were married. No, she is a very good actress. Right back to the Princess Bride. Yeah. She is always a compelling screen presence. So it is the film of the week. Right. Despite what Sir Peter Bradshaw and The Guardian thinks. Yes, I know The Guardian's not always right, and I say that as an ingrained <laughs> semi-lefty. Well, Daniel, it
0: has been great being back again.
1: It's been a joy, Richard. Yes. We, we should do this again in another Don't two years. Don't
0: leave it two years till you're next back. Yes, well, whenever someone else gets married, I'll be yes. here. Let's put it that way. So, uh, after this, we're getting you back to the railway station, and then you're back off to... The wilds of the, the West Country. The land of people with funny accents. <laughs> it's not that bad, I assure you. <laughs> we talk probably normal
1: down there. <laughs> you're enjoying it down there. I'm right? absolutely loving it. And um, can I say a, a brief shout out to all my phonic FM listeners uh, who are listening in Exeter who and uh, tuning in for this. Uh, you're taking really good care of me down there as well.
0: Good, good. Well, it's been great seeing you and we'll get you on the train and get you back and good luck for the future and we'll see you... Um, Two years' time, probably. Yes, maybe something
1: along those lines. And we will be editing this to put up on the Lionheart Radio website and download as a podcast, so just keep your eyes peeled on the Facebook page. So
0: if you want to see it, uh, lionheartradio.com, and we'll put something up on Facebook when it's there. And thanks to all the people who've responded on Facebook today. It's always good to hear from you. I'm just trying to pass some time so I can play out to the news. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Never mind, never mind. I could only finish with one track, really. Taking us out, it's Queen. And Flash. Take care.